This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. Medical research is deeply connected to healthcare services, regulatory agencies, policymakers in government, and uh, national institutions. In 2014, the Australian Clinical Trials Alliance, or ACTA, was established as the national peak body to support and represent clinician researchers conducting high-quality clinical trials within Australia. I'm Rick Day, DIA Global Forum Regional Editor for Australia and New Zealand. Today, we're welcoming Professor Steve Webb, who is the chair of the Australian Clinical Trials Alliance. Steve works in the intensive care unit, Royal Perth Hospital, has an academic appointment at Monash University in Victoria, where he's the Professor of Critical Care Research. He's joining us today to talk about ACTA. Thanks very much for joining us today, Steve, and uh, welcome. Thanks very much, Rick. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about clinical trials. Let's move on to the public health aspects of clinical trials. Maybe you could comment about lesser levels of investigation of non-drug interventions, surgery, good example, physical therapies. How are we doing there? So they're an interesting area that, again, I think community and policymaker understanding of the nuance of the issues is less well-developed than it should be. The community has high regard for the safety and effectiveness of drugs because there's a rigorous process of evaluation through clinical trials to ensure safety and effectiveness. In a lot of other areas of medicine, not so well understood, that level of regulation doesn't exist. And surgical procedures, operations, physical therapy, uh, psychological therapy are all accessible based on, on the standards of care that exist within that group of practitioners. Clearly, practitioners can't go outside what is regarded as the spectrum of standard care, but standard care can evolve and change over time. And in these areas, it often does without high-quality evidence derived from randomised controlled trials. But these are all interventions with a safety and effectiveness matrix, just as important clinically uh, as drug treatments. And we have seen notable examples in these areas of treatments that have turned out to be ineffective or even harmful when they have ultimately been evaluated in a robust way through a randomised trial. In terms of providing safe and effective therapies to the community, there's an iceberg. We know that the bit of the iceberg above the surface uh, is safe and effective, but there's this big area of ice underneath the surface where there's a presumption of safety and effectiveness, but not necessarily proof. And it seems from my observations that the members of ACTA have been very active in this space, evaluating questions like you mentioned, where we don't really know the answer or haven't really known the answer. And that would include whether what's being used as a therapy is cost-effective. And perhaps you could talk about cost-effectiveness and whether we're doing enough of that well enough. One of the big changes in the last couple of years, in my observation, at um, NHMRC and MRFF grant panels has been that 
There's now a large number of trials proposing parallel health economic evaluation. And I think that corrects a major deficiency that has existed historically. Clinical trialists do and must have as their interest generating evidence that can be applied by clinicians and policymakers uh, to improve outcomes for patients and society. And while effectiveness of treatments is a critical component of that combination, so is the societal level impact of is this a treatment that is effective and cost effective and something which can be afforded by the community, taking into account opportunity cost. Additionally, there's another angle that I'd I'd just like to spend a little while uh, exploring, which is that even with drug and devices that are regulated and need a license to be utilised in clinical practice, I hold the view that the volume, the amount of evidence that is necessary for optimal use of those interventions is very often incomplete at the time that registration trials uh, are concluded. With drugs, for example, uh, a drug that is registered must have been proven to be safe and effective and the quality of the evidence that confirms safety and effectiveness is often extremely high. But there's often an immediate temptation for clinicians to use new drugs off-label and so there's often absence of evidence outside the sometimes narrow indication that existed within uh, registration trials. Additionally, there's often alternative treatment options within that indication. And although one drug, perhaps a new drug, is licensed as safe and effective, clinicians really need comparative effectiveness data to know the best drug within that indication. And then practically at the bedside or in the office, There are frequently issues related to treatments more effective in combination or what's the optimal sequence of treatments. And so these sort of issues of broadening of indication, comparative effectiveness, optimal sequence and combination, they're really the bread and butter of the investigator-initiated networks who come in once a drug or device is regulated and do their best to generate evidence on the optimal use of that treatment. And then sort of in a parallel silo, so to speak, they're also involved in these effectiveness trials of interventions, which are from the the less regulated side of healthcare interventions. Yeah, that's an incredibly important area. And when it gets down to actually delivering healthcare, there's a lot, as you say, that's the bottom of the iceberg. If you look at Australia overall and global clinical trials, where should we be focusing to improve our contribution? And that's a challenging question to answer, Rick. I think uh, at least in part, I want to turn the question around a little bit and say that increasingly in the investigator-initiated sector, there are large multinational collaborative clinical trials. If a question is important, then access to sample size means that that question can be answered quicker. So many networks, the ICU network, particularly stroke network, cardiovascular trials, are increasingly involved in large international collaborations. And these create challenges, not least of which is how you convince national funders to pay for their portion of a big international trial. I think national funders want to have flagships that they can promote their impact by. 
But it's harder when you've got half a dozen national funders all making an equitable contribution to a, a global trial. In terms of where Australia can punch above its weight, I think the investigator-initiated sector does punch uh, substantially above its weight. I am a believer that when you've got only small amounts of money available, that it, it stokes uh, innovation. And Australia has a substantial history of doing decentralised trials even before the term had been coined. We've done very well with embedded trials within hospital systems where clinical staff undertake a lot of the trial-related activity rather than having to employ a separate silo of, uh, of research staff. And I think we've also been innovative with embracing new methodologies. Adaptive platform trials are an exciting new type of design, and we've got growing statistical expertise in this country. In this country, we've probably got world-leading expertise in operation and execution of adaptive platform trials. Perhaps uh, just one other aspect of the pandemic is that I feel that there was a huge missed opportunity to conduct trials, probably cluster trials, of the public health measures that were utilised during the pandemic. I think it's unfortunate that we still don't really understand with high quality evidence the effectiveness of mask mandates, of different types of masks, of uh, different types of social distancing uh, interventions, the length of time and testing regime that was necessary for effective quarantine. And I do have a certain amount of sadness that policymakers uh, sometimes feel that it's not the job of government to fund research, and yet it is the results of research that generate evidence that would have given them a data-driven way to make the best and optimal decisions for the community and also be able to explain and communicate them the communication of changing approaches to the community-based interventions in the pandemic, I think, was not as well done to, as it could have been. And the underlying reason is it was always being done on the basis of extrapolation of limited data. So I do feel that there was a, another aspect of missed opportunity. It's an excellent point that uh, missed opportunity, and I totally agree with the hopefully changing attitude for policymakers' government that they have a big stake in gaining high-quality evidence. To finish up, we might look for the next five years. What are you hoping ACTA is going to achieve over that period? ACTA's got a series of short-term objectives, which is continuing to do more of what we've been doing, making sure that we're effective at sharing best practice amongst networks, doing what we can to create awareness and understanding of the value of investigator-initiated clinical trials with funding bodies who obviously have many competing options and government. We've also got a longer-term objective, which revolves around many of the issues that we've chatted about today, Rick, about the community members and policymakers having greater awareness that many healthcare decisions are made in the absence uh, of high-quality evidence and wanting to see a strategic switch from the job of evidence generation being uh, regarded as a university and academic activity to being part of core business of the healthcare system. Healthcare systems obviously have as their primary role the delivery of healthcare, 
But I'm firmly convinced that we can see big improvements in health outcomes combined with substantially better financial performance of the healthcare system if the healthcare system had the dual role of treating patients as well as generating evidence about the effective and most effective treatment options to guide that care. I'd be the first to concede that the lag time before you see the benefit of that is probably well beyond a single budget cycle. And that's been one of the challenges that we've faced when we discuss that particular objective with government. Thank you, Steve. I totally agree with that. And often the healthcare systems that employ us articulate that view, but really the evidence that it's actually supported is thin on the ground. And so often the second, third level, I totally agree. And I think something that we worked on, so I think it's a great long-term goal. Healthcare is a knowledge-based industry. No one would disagree with that. Other knowledge-based industries those that are commercial knowledge-based industries, find a sweet spot in terms of the proportion of turnover that needs to go back into research and development to optimise their capacity to generate profit. In pharmaceutical drug, in drug development, it's about 20% of turnover. In computer software, it's about 10 to 15%. In hardware, it's about 5 to 10%. And even in a sort of capital labour-intensive industry like making cars, around 5% of turnover goes back into research and development. The actor estimate is that 0.1% of healthcare expenditure is from the healthcare system is going back in to support evidence generation. Now, I don't know where the sweet spot is in healthcare. I'm pretty sure it's not 0.1%. Steve, uh, you've been very generous with your time and your uh, comments and knowledge. So thanks very much for our discussion. And uh, that's really all of our questions today. But thanks very much for your time. Thanks for the opportunity, Rick. For Global Forum, I am Rick Day. more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org.